Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good evening and welcome to tonight's special program, the Commonwealth Club of California, featuring legendary director Francis Ford Coppola. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org. I'm Adam Savage, maker, editor-in-chief of Tested.com, and unemployed former co-host of Mythbusters, (laughs) and your moderator for tonight's program. It is part of the club's Good Lit series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation, And now it is my pleasure to introduce our guest, our very special guest. Francis Ford Coppola makes very few public appearances. Hence, when he does, it is, and I didn't write this joke, but here it is, truly an offer the audience can't refuse. That is why there are over 1,300 of you here in person, along with viewers of our live stream. Mr. Coppola's appearance is made even more special by the fact that today marks the publication of The Godfather Notebook, an incredible 700-page annotated document uh, covering the groundbreaking film The Godfather from four decades ago, still considered one of the great masterpieces of cinema history. The 1972 epic won Best Picture and Best Screenplay Oscars and was subsequently followed by two successful sequels. Godfather 2 also garnered Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay Oscars. Get ready to come behind the scenes and learn about Brando, Pacino, the casting, the filmmaking, along with personal and professional qualities that make our guest an American icon. Please give a warm San Francisco welcome to Francis Ford Coppola. Good evening, sir. How are you? Good evening, and thank you all very much. Um, This book is an incredible document. It's fascinating to read. Uh, It is... uh, Can you talk a little bit about what a prompt book is, what its origin is? Well, I was a theater student uh, as an undergraduate and a techie. I I I lived in and out of that theater, and I was often a stage manager, and we were taught to make what was called a prompt book by taking the text the play and um, getting a bunch of loose leaf pages and in, there are a number of ways of doing it. You can take two copies of the script. We could only afford one, so we cut holes in the loose leaf paper and glued it in carefully so that now you had the whole play in a loose leaf with big wide margins and the stage manager is the one who calls the show so he has to say, okay, lighting cue one, blah, 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 blah and then underline all the things that the stage manager is responsible for. And so I made this prompt book. I I took my copy of The Godfather, which I had scribbled a few notes on in pencil, and then I broke it apart, and I built this mammoth thing. It's about that big, very heavy. 
And my idea was to just go through it carefully, step by step, and sort of use it as an opportunity to talk to myself, say, oh, here's this, underline that. I had a half dozen pencils, different colors, pens. And, um, and then I would, I decided uh, to put a typewritten page at each juncture that I felt, not so much by the chapters of the book, but what I felt were the main beats of this uh, big novel. And this came from, uh, uh, there's a book called Directors on Directing by a guy named Toby Cole. I think it's a man. And it has different directors talking about their work. And in, one of them is Elia Kazan talking about his work preparing for Streetcar Named Desire. And this was very illuminating to me. This is a wonderful, I recommend anyone who, who can see it to look at it, in which Kazan spoke on how he prepared Streetcar Named Desire. And what was so impressive was that he had a item there he called the core. And the core was just that. It was in every scene there's something that is really the essential point that why the scene even exists. And so for the director, he knows that if he achieves the audience understanding what the core get, gets that, then, then, he's, then everything else is gravy, so to speak. And I, I, um, of course, I was a theater student in the late 50s, so there were no, the trilogy of God was Ilya Kazan, uh, Tennessee Williams, Marlon Brando, you know, to us uh, drama students. And, um, and certainly Kazan, of all the movie directors, uh, I always thought just always got the most beautiful performances from the actors. So seeing how Kazan prepared himself for Streetcar was very inspirational to me. So I wanted to go through and certainly uh, for every scene know what the core was. But then I added another four or five. I, I don't remember. Uh, you see, the first one was synopsis. That was just more or less what happened in that hunk of the, of the book. Uh, then the second, I think, maybe was um, uh, The Times, meaning I had set, the book had set the movie in the 40s, around uh, 1945, at the conclusion of the war. So, you know, the, the Times influenced all the imagery at railroad stations. There were always soldiers. And, and you could feel the, the mood of the country. So I wanted to write down for each scene how I could use the imagery of the times. Then the third was tone and imagery. That was sort of the style and mood of the imagery of the art direction of the photography. Then was the core, I think. And then I think at the end was something I called pitfalls. I found that the most interesting. Well, pitfalls was a warning of things I wanted to avoid, you know, that I could fall into. And, you know, uh, I began, I, I, I did most of this work at the Cafe Trieste next to the phone booth. I had my Olivetti typewriter. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, it was uh, fun to be there and all the Italian singing and being in, it was always my dream. One of the reasons why we all moved to San Francisco is, uh, from LA at that time, myself and my colleagues from USC and UCLA, was we sort of wanted to have a little La Boheme going on in our lives, you know, being in the cafe, working on your, your work. So I, I sat there and I would type up this first sheet, the times, the uh, tone and pitfalls, and then, and then go through with all my colored pens and do section at a time. And of course, 
one of the good, uh, uh, and, and it was everything that occurred to me, every idea that popped into my head, noting it if it was having to do with action. I think I did it in red. This is 40 some odd years ago, so I don't really remember so well. <laughs> but, but I know that uh, I did these, uh, these notations and what have you, and, um, and uh, the idea was that when I was done with this, I could just take all the part that said synopsis and just have that typed up and then that would be the synopsis of what the screenplay. So in other words, this was done before the screenplay was written. And, uh, and, and indeed, when I made the film, I really, I had this uh, army bag that I would schlep around, and I didn't have a script when I made The Godfather. I had this big book. And, and I always loved that because uh, not only do I, did I have my notes and, and, and how I was planning to do it, but but I had the original source material. When I made Apocalypse Now, I didn't have a film. I had the little green paperback of Heart of Darkness with me. And there was many things in that movie directly come from the fact that I had that, and that was my reference. When I said, oh, what is the scene? What do I have to do? That I always had the opportunity to look at the original source material as well as whatever had been prepared. Is there a, is there a possibility that there'll be a, a release of the Apocalypse Now annotated well, that, that wasn't such a big fat book. That was a little green paperback with all of my... Uh, an interesting note I will say about it is that in the script of Apocalypse, which was written by John Milius, and all of the great stuff, the great quotes, I love the smell of napalm morning, the, the Valkyrie, and the hell, that was all from John Milius' imagination. But uh, I had this, uh, this, this Heart of Darkness book, and there's a character in Heart of Darkness, I think he's called the Russian. He's sort of a zany character. He described almost wearing a patchwork of like a harlequin. And um, we, we didn't have a, a character like that in, in Heart, uh, Apocalypse Now. And we had cast Dennis Hopper to play the, the soldier, the Green Bray, who goes before uh, on this assignment, who, who was sent before um, mm -hmm. Marty Sheen. And when I saw Dennis Hopper, and, uh, you know, and I heard what Dennis Hopper was talking about. Uh, I knew there was, a, there was a guy, a photojournalist in Vietnam, I think he was Sean Flynn, was Errol Flynn's son, who was supposed to be this extraordinary character. And I just said, Dennis Hopper, he shouldn't be the soldier, he should be this guy, you know. With, and right there with the book with me, we dressed him up and kind of uh, made him a photojournalist and he was part Ifagao, uh, shirt and what have you, and that character in Apocalypse wasn't in the script and was derived, well, it was created by, by Dennis Hopper in an extraordinary state of mind, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> but he was so, Dennis Hopper, Dennis Hopper was so incredibly intelligent, but then with his extraordinary imagination, the stuff that would come out of it, so that entire character only was in that movie because I had the book Amazing. And I said, well, he could be the Russian, you know? Anyway, that's a side note. So hey, can I make a request that may not be possible? Could the house lights come up a little bit so I can see the people I'm talking to? Oh, that's a little better, a little more. Be generous. <laughs> you know, I'll give you a little tip, those of you who want to be movie directors. My, movie, my teacher was a wonderful a movie director from the 30s, a woman, Dorothy Arzner, and she was a fabulous woman, and she always told me, always sit next to the camera, and even in the years that followed when there was video assist, 
and it's always in the back somewhere, you know. She's always sit next to the camera, because not only can you see everything, the best there, but the actors can see you, and they're doing it for you. So they want to see you. Right. So I'm doing this for you, so I want to see you. A <laughs> little more like. So going back to the beginning, you, you, got the, you got word that you might be directing The Godfather, and you got an early, uh, an early release copy, and you started marking that one up. So those are the first pencil notes that are in the book that's in this, in this book. And then you slowly layered in more notes and more uh, the synopsis and the stuff. It, it feels, looking at it, like I'm, like I'm walking through your mind as the movie is developing in your head. Well, whenever I read something, even when I, you know, I have a rule that I'm always reading something, especially when I go to bed at night, that has nothing to do with anything I might be working on because it's like a little vacation from it. But to this day, I always, when I see something that interests me, I'll always underline it or highlight it. So. I was in the habit of, especially when reading some literary material that possibly I had to adapt, I always put my first thoughts in pencil so I don't destroy the book uh, down. And, and as you know, when you, whenever you write something down, it, a sentence, a few uh, words, what have you, there's like a kind of, if you put it away, it's like you put it into a magic microwave because the next time you pull it out and look at it, it's the real nucleus of what you felt and is the beginning of, of something you could, uh, you could expand upon. So I always had a few notes and, uh, you know, at first I was gonna just make more notes. Uh, I think what happened really is that I didn't like the book so much. I, I, liked, I liked parts of the book. If any of you have read the original Godfather book, which of course is everything that's in the movie was in that book, but there was a whole section, must have been a third of it, if not more, which was about a character named Lucy Mancini, who was, appeared briefly in it, but she had certain uh, anatomical problems, and um, she uh, finds a surgeon who can correct them, and they fall in love, but it's like a third of the book about this absurd, you know, and, and, I, and I thought, this is like an Irving Wallace book, this is, you know, and indeed, Mario, who was a wonderful writer and the most wonderful man that you could possibly be, he had written it as a pot boiler because uh, he, he needed to make some money for his family. He, had a, he adored his kids and uh, they were shy of money. They were living in Bayshore, Long Island. And he wrote, uh, he wrote The Godfather entirely on research. He didn't know anything other than what he, of course, the Valachi papers had come out, so there was some information, so everything he did was on research, and um, so at first I didn't, I didn't think I wanted to do it, you know. When I saw the ad for The Godfather in the paper, I thought it was gonna be this, uh, you know, intellectual uh, Italian writer like Moravia or somebody, and it was gonna be this interesting study of power, which- With the way, hand with the, with the, with the yeah, marionettes. Yeah, the puppeteer, it looked like this was some intellectual thing. And then when I read this thing of Lucy Mancini's private parts, I was, I couldn't, <laughs> I don't know if anyone rem even remembers that, but it was almost half the book. So, so I didn't really want to do it. And, um, you know, and I don't know why they offered it to me anyway. I was absolutely nobody, I just made the Rain People, which you know showed that at least I could make a movie with decent acting. I, I hope they thought that. And um, 
And I was Italian-American, so if, the, uh, if it offended Italians, they could say, well, he wrote it, he did it. <laughs> and I was young. I was still in my late 20s, which meant I could be easily pushed around. And, and, and I was a screenwriter. I had written some, some screenplays. I had already written the patent script, so they figured they'd get a free rewrite out of it because the script they had was, was sort of not very good, and it was all set in the 70s. It had hippies in it. It was all to be shot in, uh, in St. Louis. To, to, and, and it was very low budget. It was going to cost $2 million, $2.5 million, and it was the studio's chance you know, to make some money. But what happened was, of course, the book little by little became more popular, and then suddenly I was, you know, in a way attached to a more important project than my pay grade justified. And Elia Kazan had turned it down. Many directors had turned it down. A lot of directors turned it down. There had been a movie called The Brotherhood starring Kirk Douglas, which uh, was a, was, didn't perform, was considered a flop. And, and so the idea of another gangster picture didn't... Uh, sit well, and uh, so Kazan turned it down, Costa Garvas turned it down, many, many directors turned it down. And, and I might have turned it down too, as, but my, I had two kids, uh, my wife was about to have a third, we had no money whatsoever, and George Lucas, who at that time was like a young uh, associate, he had, you know, he's, he's about five years younger than me, so at first he started as an assistant, and he was so sharp that you know, he became like, like my kid brother, and we, were, we all moved to San Francisco with this dream of having an independent kind of studio with filmmakers. And George said, Francis, he says, you've got to do this book. He says, we have no money. Gonna, the sheriff's going to chain the door on American Zoetrope because <laughs> we haven't paid the rent in two weeks. He says, you, there's no other choice. You've got to do this. You're the only one who can make some money so we can get through this. Uh, so I, you know, I realized he was right. And so then I, so then I, uh, I went to the Mill Valley uh, Library. I took out a couple of books on, you know, there were like three or four books on the, the five families and about the real uh, Vito Genovese and Joe Profacci. And I read those, and they were really fascinating. So then I thought, oh, you know, maybe if I could make it more like that, that I could do something. Well, and you say in the introduction that when, you, when you'd seen that first cover, you thought this is a book about the, about the depths of power. And that, that's a repeated refrain you go back to in your notes, that that really is the central core of what the story is about. Um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, uh, in the beginning of, the, uh, of this book, you have your list of all the characters and the actors, and it looks... It looks on the page like you knew exactly who you wanted to play most of the parts right off the bat. Well, I, I was trying to do a l little personal film involving an Italian-American guy, sort of like myself. I, I always believed in the words of Strindberg, write what you know and get yourself into an emotional state while you do it. You know, so I wanted to write something personal, and I had heard about a guy named Al Pacino, he was in, uh, he, uh, he was in an Israel Horowitz play in New York. And the Indian said, wants the Bronx, And right? I, in, I invited Al to come to San Francisco and just to meet and to get to know him a little bit, and he did, and we, we kind of went around San Francisco. I was, I was always shocked how, how much all the girls liked him. 
<laughs> you know, he's a little guy. He wasn't like, you know, movie star handsome, but he had a, he had a something that really worked. And, and uh, at any rate, um, what happened was that, uh, you know, he went home and, and I had met him so that when I read The Godfather, you know how that happens. I, every time I describe Michael Corleone, I always saw his face. And you know, when he was uh, there with the two shepherds in Sicily, with the, in this scene in particular, I just saw Al Pacino. And it's very hard, once you see something, albeit in your imagination, it's very hard to have them suddenly say, well, Ryan O'Neill should play the part. <laughs> Which is what they said. Be, because there had just been a big hit for Paramount called Love Story, which starred Ryan O'Neill. Wow. And, uh, and then they said, well, maybe Robert Redford could play the part. And, <laughs> and indeed, you know, it's not as absurd as it sounds because the uh, Sicily was sort of ruled and occupied by the French for well over 100 years. And they are, uh, Sicily is full of blondes with blue eyes, the Sicilian. And if you see an Italian blonde hair, blue eyes, it's likely he's from Sicily. But nonetheless, I had that image of Al Pacino, and, uh, and that, that was what gave me the, the, the stubbornness to resist the fact that they absolutely rejected that idea. Well, and so you said that the studio hired you because they thought they could push you around, and I, I've read extensively that they fought you a lot on putting Pacino in, in the role of Michael. Absolutely, they, they didn't want Pacino at all. And later I realized this, because Bob Evans, who was the head of production, he's a kind of tall, good-looking guy. And I guess he wanted someone to look like him, and I wanted someone to look like me. <laughs> uh, but, but at any rate, after I finally agreed with, with uh, George that I had to do it, and I wanted to do it, and you know, they didn't pay me. I mean, they offered me two deals, I remember. One was $75,000 to do everything right and direct, and 10% of the net or $125 and 6% of the net. And I was absolutely broke and I had a lot of, you know, I was very much, uh, I was a family. And so I took the, the 125,000 and 6%, but I said, seven's my lucky number, please give me 7%. And they said they would, but they never did. <laughs> Somewhere there's an extra percent hanging out there. Um, how early in the reading of the book did you know that you wanted Marlon Brando to play the Godfather? Not early. I, you know, oddly enough, when finally his name did come up and talk about it, Mario said that he had always wanted Brando, and had even even before I was involved, had suggested it. And they said, "Oh, absolutely not. Marlon Brando is box office poison, and he's a lot of trouble." Which he was. I mean, in, in the sensibility of of Hollywood in those days. Uh, Marlon, uh, I mean, he, he, he's such an extraordinary person as well as actor, but he had just been in a, in a, a Gillo Pontecorvo Ponte film called Burn, Quemada. And it, it was pretty, actually a good film, but it was total, no one went to see it. So they had this idea that Brando, aside from his alleged misbehaving, which I don't know how true it, it was, uh, was uh, box office poison, so they absolutely, and, you know, the names I heard floated were Danny Thomas. <laughs> you know, Danny Thomas is, uh, you know, he, he, he's uh, Lebanese, uh, uh, which, is, uh, which is close enough. Or uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I think um, uh, Ernest Borgnine was suggested. Um, 
Even interestingly, they had a brilliant idea to maybe Carlo Ponti, who was not an actor, but who was a, a real Italian uh, producer. Uh, so, the, the, you know, it was tricky. The, the, the character was in his 60s, so it wasn't as though you were going to really find a newcomer, you know, it, it, that suddenly yeah. could act. And so much later, I worked very closely with my associate, Fred Roos, who uh, was a co-producer and, and uh, a, a casting, uh, a great casting talent. And we finally said, well, who are the two greatest actors in the world? We said, well, Marlon Brando and Laurence Olivier. So uh, Olivier, you know, of course, both of them had issues. I mean, Brando was only like 46, so he was young, he was not Italian. And uh, Olivier really looked like Vito Genovese at, at that age. If you look at the pictures of who was one of the famous five guys that, I think that Ma Mario synthesized the character out of Vito Genovese and Joe Profacci, put those two guys together. And, uh, and then we heard that um, uh, Olivier was, was too ill. He, at his latter part of his age, he, and he was English, so. So we, we settled on Brando, but absolutely a stonewall. They had already turned down Pacino, and uh, I, they kept wanting to do more screen tests. So uh, we had the cast, ironically, that was actually in the film, all up here in San Francisco. My wife, I think, gave them a haircut, or Alan. And we knew more or less who, who we wanted, but Paramount spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to do real formal screen test. We tested every, every young leading man in the, in the business. Um, and uh, ultimately, they never would accept uh, Pacino. Right to the end, I thought, I'll tell the story, it's pretty funny. So, so uh, as for Brando, they absolutely were adamant. I was even told in one meeting by the president of Paramount, Francis, as the president of Paramount Pictures, I want you, I want you to know that Marlon Brando will never appear in this motion picture, and I forbid you from discussing it any further. <laughs> so with that, I kind of fell out of the chair onto the rug or some dramatic <laughs> gesture of helpless protest. <laughs> <laughs> and then they all looked, and then I got up. I said, well, if I can't even talk about it, I mean, what, what, how can it be? What, you know, how can I direct a movie? Like, I'm not even allowed to talk about it. And one guy said, well, listen, if we cast Brando, just a Joe, Joe Dokes, an unknown, more people will come than if, if Marlon Brando was in it. That's how much they were against it. So finally, they said, okay, we give you three conditions. One, if he does a screen test. Two, if he'll do it for free. And three, he has to put up a million dollar bond to guarantee that there'll be no shenanigans on the set. So I said, I accept. <laughs> you know, because at least we, we were talking, you know. And uh, I, I put myself, I, I was terrified of, I mean, I thought Marlon Brando was, uh, you know, like a, a dream that I was even talking to him, you know. But I said, oh, you know, Marlon, you're not really Italian. Maybe we could do a little improvisation or something and for you to kind of get comfortable. And, uh, you know, so, so. <laughs> I had heard, I, I know you want to talk about the book, but I thought it'd be fun to talk about the casting of Marlon if I, if, we'll, we'll, we'll go over our time. So, so that I said, I had heard that Marlon 
uh, didn't like loud noises, that he often wore earplugs and stuff. So I got together with some of my San Francisco colleagues, some cameramen. I said, listen, let's dress in black and no one talk. We'll just do sign languages when, we, when we're there. So we fly to LA with our cameras, and I had a little early Sony, uh, like one of the early Sony handy cams. And we knocked on the door, and the maid let us in, and we set up our camp very quietly. There was a beautiful little baby on the counter. That was the daughter that passed away. I always think of her. And um, we were all ready, and, all, and I had brought like little sausage and little you know, mortadella and put little dishes of provolone around and, and Italian cigars. And then the door opened and out walks this spectacular man with flowing blonde hair in a Japanese kimono. <laughs> As I said, he was around 46 years old. And he comes out and, you know, he caught what was going on like, like that. He, he's so sharp. And he came out and he rolled his blonde hair up into a bun and he got some shoe polish and he started making it black and I'm shooting him, you know, and I'm going to my ninjas, you know, all this kind of. And then he um, put on a shirt and I remember he took the lapel and he went, oh, those guys always have, their lapel is always folded. And he started folding his lapel. And then he said, um, you know, you should look like a bulldog. So he took some tissues and he stuffed it in his, and I'm shooting this whole time for this gorgeous blonde Adonis. And then he said, and you know, in the story, he, he gets shot. So, so maybe he should talk like this, you know, because he's shot. I said, yeah, yeah, Marlon. <laughs> and then he starts sitting like we're here, and he's sitting there and he's taking the sausage. And he takes the cigar and he's totally using all of these props to arrive at this Italianist. And he's going, <laughs> and then the phone rings in his house. So he picks up the phone and goes, <laughs> I have no idea who that was, you know. So I took the, I had this, and he, he was very gracious, and I left. And I, and, I, and I couldn't believe the transformation I had seen, so I, I took a wild risk, and I just flew to New York on my own, and I went to the Gulf and Western Building, which is now, well, uh, I went to the Gulf and Western Building, and, um, and I went up to the floor where Charlie Bluthorn was the owner of Paramount, and, and uh, Charlie was this very interesting guy. You, you were allowed to call him Charlie, so I, you know. But he was from Vienna, so he sort of had a Viennese accent. And uh, I knocked on the door, and the secretary said, oh, could Mr. Bluthorn, I have something to show him. And I set up the tape recorder right in a kind of small boardish room that was right by his room. And he came out, I said, Francis, Francis, what are you doing here? I said, oh, could I just show you something? He said, sure. So I go and I turn on the thing, and there is Marlon Brando and his blonde hair coming out of the door. And he says, no, no, absolutely, that's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. Amazing. It sounds from your stories like there were a lot of disagreements with the studios, and you say in the introduction that um, you should say that the film had ups and downs, but you described the film as for you having downs and downs. Well, I always thought I was going to be fired. 
And I mean, I, I, after a while, I was sure I was going to be fired. And uh, they, they, we were totally stuck on the Al Pacino thing, but Brando had been cast. And um, they sent me to England to go spend a little time with Brando. He was working on a film called Mortori, I think it was called. And he was such an extraordinary man. So I went to this little English house where he was staying, and I waited in the room, and I heard footsteps coming. And it was him carrying a tray of things for me. I was, you know, like some coffee and cakes. And how brilliant he was to know that if he kind of played the role of a servant, that, that would put me at ease, you know? Yeah. Which is why I think he did it. I mean, so we talked, and it was very nice. And uh, uh, well, when I was flying back, when I got off the plane, uh, I called my secretary, and the message she gave me was, uh, was a message, and she said, don't quit, let them fire you. <laughs> so I immediately knew what that meant. <laughs> what that meant is if I quit, I wouldn't get the, the $125,000, and I needed the hundred. I mean, I had a little family there waiting, but if, uh, they, if, if I quit, I wouldn't get it, but if they fired me, uh, I, 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 I would. So then I called and I said, look, don't even make me bother to come in, you know, uh, uh, you know. And they said, no, no, everything's changed. The cast is going to be Al Pacino, Jimmy Connors, Sonny, uh, Talia, your sister. Uh, and it's true, I didn't think my sister was right from the part because my sister's so beautiful and I thought Carlo's wife should be some girl that only gets married because her father's a big shot, you know. But uh, she did wonderfully, uh, of course. But, and, um, and, uh, and the other cast, John, uh, Johnny Casal and Bobby DeVille was okay. And I said, well, what happened? I said, because, um, because Pacino had taken another part in a movie called The Gang That Wouldn't Shoot Straight. How did this happen? He says, well, we, we sorted it all out. I said, well how, well, how come they changed? He said, well, we saw some footage from a film uh, called Panic in Needle Park that Pacino was in and that they thought he looked really good. So that's how, so I was told, you know, I thought it was curtains. And we began, we began the movie um, uh, subsequently with that cast. Although every week I really, the rumor was I was gonna be fired. <laughs> that's terrifying. My, my wife who's sitting here remembers when the editor uh, had lunch with her, and the editor said, I don't know, the footage doesn't cut, I'm so-and-so. But the editor wanted to be made the director. And he had asked me to hire some of his friends to be the assistant director and stuff, so there was an active group within the, in the company that was rooting to fire me. So one day on a, on a, like a, a Tuesday or Wednesday, like we are now, Brando finally came in and he shot the first scene, which was the scene when they all meet with Solazzo in the, uh, the kind of olive oil company. And they didn't like, they thought you couldn't see him, the photography's too dark, and he mumbles, you couldn't understand him, and they were very upset. So I said, listen, it was his first day, and he was a little nervous, and he was, you know. I remember when I said, Marlon, are you stalling? Let's go do this, and he says, because I get scared too. All actors get scared, of course, that's part of it. So um, I said, well, I, we're right down here, I could run right up there, into the olive oil factory, I'll, I'll just do it again. I'm sure we'll do better. And, they, and the producer said, Francis, they're gonna fire you this weekend. So they don't wanna back up and do that. So I, I and I said, well, I get it. You know, why do they always fire the director on the weekend? So the other director, 
can have the weekend to get ready and then Monday have a new start. So it was a, it was a Wednesday. So I knew who the 14 people were who were actively the conspirators, so I fired them all <laughs> on a Wednesday. Now, no one knew, including myself, whether I had the authority to fire them. <laughs> you know, so, I, so what you do when you're young and have no clout is you bluff. And I just fired them, and they were all on the phone, can he do this, blah, blah, blah. But by the time the weekend came around, um, uh, to when this curtains would have happened for me, they then saw the new day of shooting of Marlon, and oh, it was so great, it was so different. No, we're not gonna fire you, and Charlie took me over to the Palm Steakhouse with my father and bought me steak, and oh, we're behind you. But you know, in the movie, the scene is from the first day that they didn't like. <laughs> so. Uh, we have some questions from the audience. Uh, the first one wants to know, what was it like collaborating with Mario Puzo, and how did you guys work together? He was just the most wonderful man, and uh, he was in the East. I, was, I would write the screenplay, and then I would send it to him, and then he, in his novelist way, would write all these wonderful changes. One sticks out in my mind is that I, I, I can cook a little bit, so I had one of the characters, uh, Clemenza, talk about, oh, and I, had it, I figured it's good in a movie if you have a recipe. So he, he explains how you brown the sausage and you put a little sugar. And the note from Mario was, gangsters don't brown, they fry. <laughs> so Mario was always there making it better. Yeah. And, and uh, I knew that Mario loved to gamble. So I said, let's just go to a gambling casino and work on one of the final scripts. I don't know if that was the first Godfather, it was the second Godfather. So we used to go to uh, the pepper mill in Reno, me and Mario, he used to just blow money on the roulette table and people would say, oh, poor guy. And he would say, we're losing thousands down here, but we're making millions upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> he was just the most wonderful man and you know, there's a reason why when the movie starts, it says Mario Puzo's The Godfather, is because you know, he really wrote The Godfather. And I've always felt that, you know, I've adapted a lot of, uh, I've written scripts from scratch and I've adapted authors, but you know, whoever wrote the original book or the play did the heavy lifting, uh, you know, so I always had, uh, always felt that it should be their name above the title. And on all my movies, you'll always see, even, even uh, Bram Stoker, Whoever it was, if you wrote it, that's the hard part. I've written some from scratch, but it's much harder to write a thing from scratch than to adapt a novel into a screenplay. We, we, we live in an age now where um, it's relatively easy to be a, a film aesthete. You have access to a tremendous library at any given time, even on, on tiny devices. Um, but when you were making The Godfather, it was hard work. You had to work very, very assiduously to educate yourself about the history of film. What were your inspirations uh, visually in the tone of making The Godfather? Well, just also it was hard because you really typed it. And, and I always had a rule when I did a rewrite, I always would put the old script on my left and I would type the entire script over on the theory that by forcing myself to type it all, I would be rewriting everything, which was true. No more, none of the cut and paste that we're used to now. So your question was about um, what were your inspirations? Well, you know, I was a 17-year-old living in 
Long Island with the beginning of the art house phenomena. So we were seeing films of Rossellini and films of Bergman and films of Fellini and films of uh, all of those extraordinary Italians at the same time that we were seeing films of Orson Welles, of the film of Orson Welles and, and Kubrick as, as a 21 year old. And then all of the wonderful artists who work for the Hollywood studio, Lewis Milestone and, and uh, William Wyler and uh, you know these beautiful films that were made in the American system. So we were sort of caught in this cross current of Polynesia, you know, the auteurs, the, uh, and then as you dug into it, you saw the silent films of Pabst and Marnau, and it was, you know, the cinema is only a hundred and what, 120 years old, but the urge to make cinema must have been building up, and so that when it finally happened because of the technology, it just burst out. I mean, I'm sure that Goethe and Strindberg and Schiller would all have been making films because they were all writers and poets and, and scientists, so they would have loved this film. So my theory is that the human race just, when they finally got the gift to be able to have cinema, they just went mad. And, you know, people say, what's the best film ever made? Or the best, what are the best 300 movies ever made? Or the 400, the, the, in the silent period alone, in those few years, uh, there were probably 50 masterpieces made. Marno once said, he said, he said uh, sound had to come, but it came too soon. Because they were really learning how to tell stories with images. So uh, our, the wealth of our heritage of uh, hats off to Marty Scorsese and his film preservation, because many of these films were on the way of being lost. So the, the film heritage of the world is so extraordinarily rich and, and from all, all the different countries. Um, we have another question from the audience. Your wife, Eleanor Coppola, uh, is also a filmmaker, and this audience member says they love her uh, generous and astute writing to Hearts of Darkness. Can you speak to the role she has played creatively to your own work and process? Well, Eleanor is my first wife. <laughs> and and, and uh, she is here. I, I wouldn't embarrass her. Will you stand up and wave to everyone? Eleanor has just made her first feature film. I won't say her age, but she's in the book of records as the woman to make her first. But, you know, she came from, a, a, she's Irish, uh, and, uh, and came from a sort of a bohemian artist father living on a, on a, on a, in a bungalow on the beach in Sunset Beach, but she always was very much caught up in arts, the, the visual arts, the plastic arts. She herself has made uh, many kinds of artworks, even getting into the conceptual art and performance art. So, you know, she, it was a good match, as our children attest to, because we have really neat children, all of whom are uh, on their way. Uh, I don't know, it must be a contract in blood the Coppola's have to sign, because every one of them has made a feature film. <laughs> and, uh, and I think her, her input on the kids and my more Italian version of, of it all has, uh, has not only imprinted the kids, but also us, me, and, and, and I think I've been a big influence on, on Eleanor, which is as it should be. When you 
I recently watched The Godfather a couple of months ago, and I was, I was struck with how fresh the opening wedding feels, uh, how fresh it still feels. On the, I've seen, seen it dozens of times. And in your pitfalls in the opening scene, you say specifically, I don't want, you say, I don't want it to be like these jokey Italian accents. You want it to feel like you're there. Well, you know, I am a true Italian-American. I'm, I'm all... My four grandparents, two came from Naples, and two come from Lucania, which is the arch of the Buddha, otherwise known as Basilicata. So uh, I was raised, my mother, would, I remember in the, in the late 40s, said, oh, you're so lucky, you're American, and American is the greatest country in the world. My father said, yes, but you're Italian, and you have, you know, you have the culture of uh, the great Michelangelo and Leonardo, and, he took credit for Archimedes, too. <laughs> so I, we always felt really wonderfully unique because we were American and Italian, and we ate pizza when no one else did. <laughs> because pizza was brought back by the GIs from, from the Second World War. People didn't know about pizza. Um, so so I, my family were all musicians, classical musicians, for the most part. There were some tool and die makers and... and uh, uh, those kind of skilled uh, mechanical people. But, but what I did is I took what my home life was like, the same exact, and the only difference being that they, my family were m m musicians and not, and not murderers. <laughs> so it had all the textures of a real Italian-American, and that wedding is what we call uh, a football wedding. Why a football wedding is because the food are these sandwiches wrapped up in a kind of crinkly paper that say prosciutto or uh, capagol or provolone. And it's a football wedding because you always used to throw, hey, send me a prosciutto, and you throw the prosciutto. <laughs> and the little kids were always, they would say, slide around the sandwich man, you know, the little kids at the wedding. So all I did was take that kind of wedding, and I was blessed to have my father uh, and mother, who, like gypsies, just came with us because it was a job, you know, that we were doing. And uh, he was always providing the band at the wedding, all those, all of those uh, tarantellas and the musical things he wrote, uh, except for, of course, the famous song. And uh, so it was a kind of family. It was like a film about a family made by a family. And, and you also have a bunch of notes about uh wanting to make sure you can communicate that Johnny Fontaine is a big movie star, but you've, you, you've, write, you've clearly seen many times in which this type of introduction of a character has been mangled by filmmakers. And you want to communicate well, you this. Know, of course, everyone knew this from the book that it was possibly, that it was the story of Frank Sinatra, how he got the part in uh, uh, what was From Here to Eternity. So uh, Sinatra had run into Puzo in a Beverly Hills place and really castigated him, really was uh, mean to him, you know, because of putting that in the book. But once I ran into Sinatra, I'm all right, he was there surrounded by beautiful girls and stuff. And he looked at me, he says, hey, he says, let's buy the book and I'll play the Godfather, he told me. <laughs> yeah, I ran out of there. <laughs> <laughs> so, I knew that I had to get, uh, I, I saw a guy more like Eddie Fisher or 
who was not Italian, obviously, but he lived in our neighborhood when I was a kid, Eddie Fisher, and or or Vic Damone. I really wanted Vic Damone, but Vic Damone was too scared of the Cosa Nostra to do it. So we had a lot of trouble finding someone to play play that part. Um. All right, and we have another question from and the And of course, audience. I thought the way to set him up that he oh, yeah. really was a star was just to have a lot of teenage girls screaming as they did in the 40s for Frankie. And it feels like you're watching a documentary. It feels totally genuine. Well, you know, The Godfather had one of the world's great photographers, Gordon Willis, one of the world's great art directors, Dean Tavalaris, one of the world's great costumers, Johnny, uh, Anna Hill Johnson, who did all of On the Waterfront. So, you know, sometimes you get lucky and the, the, a movie is such a collection of collaborators and every one, and then the music by Nino Rota, uh, the, the hair and uh, all the prosthetics, uh, uh, everyone was just superb. And I remember in the early days, The Godfather, you know, I would get some flack. Uh, all my films have always been greeted by a little ambiguous even The Godfather, you know, especially in San Francisco. And someone said to me, hey, he says, but the film is great photography, great acting, great art direction, great, so what did you, what did you do? I said, well, I, I picked them all. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so uh, another question, oh, actually, no, I'm curious about The Mists of Blood and your collaboration with Dick Smith on the film. Uh, not only Dick Smith, who was an extraordinary talent, as, as we know, but I was, anyone with a half a brain can see that I was very impressed with Bonnie and Clyde, which was directed by Arthur Penn. And Bonnie and Clyde had some of the neatest uh, live action effects. Live action effects is when the effect is really done there through trickery and not, of course, not later as an optical effect. So live action effects are like the, the grasshoppers in, uh, in uh, the good earth were clothespins, like the cyclone in The Wizard of Oz is a great big windsock on a track that went a different way in the ceiling and the floor. So these are real geniuses, these guys. And I was so impressed with um, Bonnie and Clyde, which also was Dean Tavalaris, that I found the, the effects guy whose name was um, Oh, my God, is, what was, A.D. Flowers, God, how nicely, he, I think of him playing that card game, A.D. Flowers was his name. And, you know, the thing about violence in a movie is you, you, it's a little bit like a magician because you have to employ misdirection. You have to let the, the audience is way ahead of you. So if they see the car speeding around the thing, they know it's going to roll over three times and burst into flame. So you almost don't have to do it. But if you can get the audience to think something else is going to happen <clears throat> and then hit them, for example, uh, everyone knew the scene of the horse's head. And the horse's head in the book, the way it's done, is, of course, the movie producer who has the prize multi-million dollar horse uh, is to wake up in the morning and the horse, the severed head, is on the bedpost and he sees it and he's horrified. Well, I thought everyone knows that, but what if I put the horse's head under the sheets at the foot of the bed, so when he first opens the sheet, he sees the blood, he thinks that he's been something amputated or stabbed or something, he sees the blood and he's, 
horrified, and then he flips it over, and then he sees the horse's head. So whenever I could, I tried to do the violence to mislead the audience a little bit and to think it was going to go to the left when it really was going to go to the right. And A.D. Flowers was such a genius. When they shot uh, uh, Mo Green through the eye, I said to him, oh, I want to see where they shoot some right now. Well, that's an impossible effect to do. How do you do that effect live? Today, you can do everything fake. And he had two tubes going up the eyeglasses, one with, a with air, one shot a BB out through the glass, and the other did a spurt of blood. That's A.D. Flowers. He could always figure out how to do these things. It shot a BB right next to his eye but it out. Yeah, and the, air, and the air that shot it out also blew any shards of away course. from his eye. That's how that was then. <laughs> um, uh, on, the, on, the, on the DVD of The Godfather, there's, there's uh, tons and tons of screen, uh, screen tests with different actors. Uh, and as you talk about some of these actors and we hear the audience laughing, it's clear that you took every suggestion seriously and saw what that person could bring to the role. Uh, what was the most ludicrous suggestion the studio had for you for someone to play a role in The Godfather? Ooh, um, you know, maybe some of the Michael choices. I mean, they didn't care whether that made sense or anything. It was like if they had something like, you know, like Ryan O'Neill. I mean, you could have done it. You, you, anybody can be anything if you have a, if you see a path that you could take, you know. But the, the, I think the stupidest decision was they wanted me to make it all set in 1973 and shoot it in Kansas City. <laughs> Hey, can I do something wild? Can someone just wants to ask me a question? I know you wrote them, but just raise their, your hand who wants to ask me. Just shout it out. I am wondering, uh, and I'm hoping to start another film project soon, and I'm wondering if you have any advice on uh, production or working with actors, any pieces of advice you can give me, and also, will you hire me? Uh, in the wine business? <laughs> you know, normally I, tell, normally I tell young guys who ask me that question, what should I do, and I say, get married. Because it was the fact that I was married young and I had this wonderful little family that I wanted so hard to be able to take care of and, and provide for that. Instead of going out and being the wild Hollywood guy in nightclubs, I was at home writing scripts. So I take the fact of my early marriage as uh, one of the reasons why I had a young success. Seriously, though, about actors, try to get um, at least three or four days of rehearsal. Films don't ever rehearse. But you can do so much just in an empty room with your actors, just getting to know each other, being, having them be in character, doing improvs and playing theater games. Uh, I always did a, a rehearsal. The Godfather, the really breakthrough night was very early. We were in Patsy's restaurant, and I had arranged for a back room in an Italian restaurant up, 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 uh, uptown New York. And I set up it to look like a dining table, you know, with uh, and, and it was Marlon's first night to be with the actors, and they were just terrified and enthralled to be to meet Marlon Brando, as as were we all. And and uh, I had an ordered an Italian meal, and I had Marlon at the head, and to the right was Al Pacino, the Johnny Casale, Jimmy Conn, Robert Duvall, and my sister Tally was serving them the different courses. And I said, do an improvisation. When you do an improvisation, you usually tell. 
each participant some little secret thing that they should work toward. But they're basically just making up the scene. And, you know, Al was being like very intense and sensitive, you know, to impress Marlon how intense and sensitive he was. <laughs> <coughs> Jimmy Kahn was just cracking jokes and, you know, bada beep, bada bop, and was impressing Marlon how funny he was. Johnny Casal was just the sweetest guy on earth, and he was just sitting there being sweet. And Robert Duval was, every time Marlon wasn't looking, he was doing Marlon Brando imitation. <laughs> <laughs> and my sister Tally was just terrified, and she was just a young girl serving the meal. But I tell you, after that two-hour, three-hour improv, they were a family. So when you work with actors, especially when you use something sensual like food or music or dancing, you can really, uh, you can really bring the actor along. I, for years I thought that you get them to the point where they become the character. But recently, doing a, a very good improv, I realized, oh no, that's not what happens. They, eventually, the character becomes them because it's the actor that really does it, is the flesh and blood person, and the character is an apparition, a, a phenomenon that inhabits them. Uh, and, but that process is very magical, and if you have a few days to work with the actors, that's why I think everyone who wants to be a filmmaker should, at first, just do one-act plays, because if you do one-act plays, you're working with the essentials of what cinema is, which is writing and acting. Of course, cinematography and editing and all that are extraordinary disciplines and very essential, but you can make a movie that has wonderful acting and wonderful writing and terrible everything else, and it can be a wonderful movie. But you, I don't think you can make a movie that has terrible writing and terrible acting and beautiful art direction. What do you have, you know? Uh, so it's acting and, acting and writing is the, is the oxygen and hydrogen that makes up this, the work itself, you know. Francis, thank you so much for taking time oh, to, to talk to us. So thank you to Francis Ford Coppola, whose book, The Godfather Notebook, is just out. We also thank our audience here and on radio, television, and the internet. Tonight's program has been part of the club's Good Lit series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. I'm Adam Savage, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week -week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. 
Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Tune into the Michelle Miao Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices.